When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This podcast contains explicit language. The government might shut down this week, and this is the only podcast that can tell you how, why, and also who to blame. Also, here our interview with Congressman Ted Yoho, a conservative House Republican who definitely blames the Democrats. Republicans say text messages between two FBI agents have totally compromised the special investigation into Trump's campaign. What's more likely is that Republicans compromised the agents' marriages by exposing the affair they were having. And this week, the question of Trump's mental and physical stability reached its savage climax. Is the president crazy? We're the only podcast that has the answer. I'm Arthur Delaney. And I'm Elise Foley. And this is So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about things that happened in politics. Hello, this is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleagues Igor Bobic. Hey, Arthur. And Elise Foley. Hey. Elise Foley is the co-host of this podcast, but she's an expert on immigration policy, and that makes her an expert on why the government might shut down. <laughs> that, which right. is not to say that immigration policy would be the, the actual reason for it, and that's the big debate that's happening now in Congress over whether and how to keep the government open. Republicans have a bill that would do it for just a month. And it's a and whether it the, the big question is who would get blamed if the bill goes down in flames, which as of Thursday morning looks like it could, right, Elise? Yeah. So Republicans, it doesn't look like as of Thursday morning have the votes on their to pass it themselves through the House because they've got these Freedom Caucus guys who say that they won't support it. So they either need to come up with something that their guys will support, which potentially would make the Senate, you know, unable to support it, or do something that Democrats might vote for in the House. Um, I talked to a Freedom Caucus guy named Ted Yoho from Florida, and uh, we will have great him. name. You will, it's a, one of my favorite members of Congress, and we'll have <laughs> audio of that interview after this segment. And Ted Yoho, uh, spoiler alert, he said the problem that the Freedom Caucus guys have is that. They don't throw extra money at the military in this uh, month-long funding bill they've got. So that's that's basically it. That's the problem the Freedom Caucus has, right? I mean, that- yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like this whole. Uh, this is you know how how Congress works, I guess. But this whole mess of different issues. So you have people who don't want to vote for something because. They uh, want more defense spending. They have people who are worried about the levels of spending in general. You have people who don't want to vote for something because it doesn't include something to help young undocumented immigrants. People who don't want to vote for a short-term bill just on the principle that it's wrong and not a good way to run the government to continue doing these short-term bills. That's true. So there's just a lot of ways that this thing could go down, and that means government shutdown. So Democrats – in the House, their leaders are saying, don't vote for this because it doesn't include a DACA deal, uh, something to prevent the deportation of dreamers, people who were brought to this country illegally when they were children. And that – Democrats looks like they'll they'll hold off on the House and Republicans would need to potentially do this by themselves. It depends. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, obviously the Democratic leader, um, usually has a pretty tight uh, grip on her on her members. Um, and they they follow her lead, but uh, right now they're putting in a t- they're being put in a tough spot because Republican leaders have effectively weaponized uh, the children's health insurance program. They've added a provision that would fund that program for six years to this bill that would keep the government open as a way to uh, you know try to get Democratic votes. So Democrats are now uh, being put in a difficult spot where they've been pushing and pushing to get this program funded, and now they finally have an opportunity to do so. 
But uh, they also don't want to vote for it because it doesn't include protection for dreamers. So the six-year funding for CHIP is actually the longest amount of funding Congress would have ever will have ever provided if they, if they were to do that. So that is a big deal. And they're also saying that because the Pentagon piece includes a pay raise for troops that if you don't vote for this, you're voting against the troops. <laughs> That's right. Um, the, <laughs> anytime ever there's a shutdown, I think the troops are the one of the biggest parts in it. Uh, and, and even if there is a shutdown, the military still gets paid. Uh, and this is what you know, President Donald Trump is saying they won't get paid. They won't get paid. They will get paid. They're considered, um, you know, uh, critical members of the government. So what Mark Meadows, the leader of the Freedom Caucus, said on Wednesday is that if it gets through the House, you can't blame Republicans because at that once it's the Senate's problem and they need Democrats just because the number of of uh, Republicans in the Senate is is low, then it will effectively be Democrats' fault. If the government shuts down uh, because of Senate Democrats not supporting this this package, you think that's reasonable? Um, I mean, they it, both parties are going to say like either party is going to say it's the other's fault if there's a shutdown, right? So in the Senate, there is a different dynamic because Republicans can't pass these types of bills or most bills on their own. They need sixty votes to get past a filibuster. And they only have 51. So they need Democrats to vote with them. I think there's an interesting wrinkle this go around because we now have two Republicans. We have Senators Lindsey Graham and also Mike Rounds who've said that they would not vote for a short term bill because they don't want a short term bill that because that they say that's bad. Um, So once you start losing Republicans as well, then it makes it harder to blame just the Democrats. Um, but, you know, certainly Republicans will do so and say that, you know, they're holding our troops hostage because of illegal immigrants. Have Republican leaders said why they're doing another short term bill? Because this, I believe, would be the fourth one in the past, like, four months. Why aren't they doing a long term funding bill? Uh, be- because there is this issue of DACA dreamers um, who-, who will stand to lose their protection. Um, and Democrats are finally insisting after uh, caving several times. I believe this is the fourth short-term extension bill since September. I just said that. And uh, <laughs> and um, it's it's finally coming to a head. And whereas in previous times, in December, you had a whole bunch of Democrats voting to to fund the government. Now they're fed up and the, the atmosphere is – there's so much anger out there that, that we, they keep having to do this over and over again that it's finally I, coming that, to a head. I don't understand. Why would Republicans use – you know, because Democrats are mad, why would they use a short-term funding bill instead of doing something long-term? I mean, wouldn't that wouldn't Republicans want to take DACA off the table? Why why are they setting themselves up for another government shutdown drama in a month? Well, I mean, you've got the president saying he does not like anything that's coming out of the Congress right now. There is a there is a deal, a bipartisan deal on DACA, uh, and the, and the president says that's not. It's not the way to go. Oh, my God. The president sent the dumbest tweet <laughs> on Thursday morning. Did he? Really? Um, it said that he did not uh, – Elise, could you bring it up so we have sure. it verbatim? It seemed – it betrayed no understanding of the situation whatsoever because he seemed to complain that CHIP would be authorized for only 30 days. Yeah. So here it is. CHIP should be part of a long-term solution, not a 30-day or short short-term extension. Which is not what House Republicans are proposing, a 30-day chip extension. So it's as if he's – I guess you could say he's complaining that the long-term reauthorization of chip is part of a short-term government funding measure. But that that makes no sense. And John Cornyn actually chimed in with a tweet to say just that. The chip reauthorization is long-term. Come on, man. And, And Mitch McConnell had been complaining, we don't know what the president wants. Yeah, I mean, I I think we'd have to go pull up uh, what was being said on Fox and Friends this morning to Mm. find out why he tweeted that. But it's just another example of Republicans are trying to do something that the president will support, but they can't figure out what he's going to support. So Mitch McConnell said on Wednesday uh, that they on immigration, they want something that the president will sign. That's their priority. And they still aren't sure what that is. So if you have this constantly moving target, how do you come up with a deal that he'll support? I think that's why these other um, 
senators came together and are like, you know what, why don't we make a deal and we can send it to him and he can, you know, either say yes or no versus us trying to constantly guess what it is he wants. You know, clearly this is the art of the deal, right? If you read the book that Donald Trump wrote. I know you read it. Oh, I read it many times. Have a Many times. <laughs> have no real ask, right? Anytime that you say something, say something else. I'm being completely facetious here. This is like the totally opposite way of negotiating. Okay. Because yeah, he, his asks keep changing every single day, depending on who he talks to, depending on what he sees on television. There's no – he doesn't really believe in anything. He just he just says things. Yeah, and on immigration, uh, people need to remember that this stuff is all super, super complicated. So they said last week, okay, we want these four things. We'll do some sort of relief for dreamers. Um, we also want to end the diversity visa lottery. We want to end what they call chain migration, which is family-based uh, immigration uh, aspects of it. And also we want um, more border security and we want some wall. So, But all of those things, there are different ways of going about all of those things. And there are things that Democrats are willing to agree with and things that they aren't. And so just making these like broad statements – uh, isn't isn't even that helpful, uh, even if you do have people, other people from the White House being a little bit more detailed, because the whole thing can just get derailed by a tweet. So th- there are reasons that this is extremely complicated. There are two chambers of Congress with different rules. There are multiple policy provisions, which, like you just said, have different ways of being achieved. And there are multiple factions in each chamber that want different things. But one thing is simple, and I think you, Elise, wrote a very clarifying article, and it is uh, the question of whether Democrats will stand up for dreamers, this constituency of people who, through no fault of their own, were in this country illegally as children, and who, because of action taken by President Trump, will lose a protected status in large numbers come March, and potentially be deported and have their families split up and be sent home to dangerous countries where they could die. And Democrats, when they had the last opportunity in December to uh, with a whole support from a government funding bill, if it didn't help them, they, they didn't take that opportunity. And now they have another chance. Yeah, exactly. And they uh, Democrats promised over and over last year, we will not go home until we for Christmas until we fix this. And a lot of them did vote against it. I mean, in the House. Uh, a lot of most Democrats voted against the, it. Uh, the, most Democrats in the Senate voted against it. In the House, they all uh, no one voted for it until it had already achieved the number, you know, Repub- enough Republican support to pass without them, and then they voted for it. Yeah, but it's it's the Senate where they have a little bit more power potentially, depending on various dynamics in the House. They sometimes have more power uh, there as well, but in the Senate, they have a lot of power because. Literally nothing can pass without their votes. And so if they, you know, stand together, they have a lot of power. That's what uh, a lot of people are asking them to do. But whether they agree to do it is the big question. I think one thing that's interesting is the dynamic of people who are now saying, I won't support this type of short-term funding because I don't support this short-term funding on principle. That allows them to not be – you know, or potentially not be labeled as I, uh, they shut down the government over dreamers, but instead they shut down the government over this is not the right way to, you know, fund our military. Well, yeah, at least it, rhetorically, it gives them another excuse, which maybe is helpful uh, on the side for Democrats trying well, to yeah, have it, leverage. How, how are you going to blame Democrats anyway if it was a, a bipartisan coalition that opposed the measure? I, but what I don't understand is why did Democrats. They seem to accept the argument, which is propagated basically by the House Freedom Caucus, that if Senate Democrats don't support a government funding measure, it's their fault if the government shuts down. I I personally don't think that that is reality because it is up to the party controlling each chamber what gets voted on. I I think we don't know yet who's going to get blamed. And but no, but anticipating blame is the whole is like fifty percent of what's happening right. at least. Right Don't now. you think though the the media not to get meta here, but the media plays into that somewhat. Yes, like the question is always: Will you Senate Democrats shut down the government over and over? And I'm not saying Huffington Post doesn't do this as well, but 
uh, that's always that the way it's framed is that they would be it would be their fault. I th- I think the media actually is uh, unintentionally carrying water for the House Freedom Caucus position right now, and it, you know they don't really need to, but that's what's happening, and that could shape the public perception of the outcome. But I I don't personally think it's. Uh, necessarily an accurate description of what of what's going on like republicans control both chambers and control the content of the legislation they'll put on the floor in each chamber yeah and i mean if they wanted to vote on something to do with daca it really wouldn't be all that hard for them to do it i'm all this stuff is really complicated like i said before but there are a bunch of bills that have existed for a really long time that have gotten a bunch of votes in the past uh that you know they could put up one of those the, there's this bipartisan group that uh, currently they have, I believe, seven Republicans who've said that they would support their this deal. Um, and so if you get every single Democrat, that means that you're 56 votes. So pretty close to passing the Senate. Um, you know, it's a different question in the House. But there are options. But instead, they're just holding these meetings and taking forever and not coming to any sort of solution um, I think that Democrats are frustrated at how long this is taking. Trump ended this program in early September, and a lot of Republicans are acting as if there's absolutely no urgency, even though at the moment we're nearing the end of January. Uh, all of this stuff is said to get even worse. It's already had an effect, but get even worse in March. So Democrats are like, no, this you can't take so long. You need to hurry up. President Obama created this program after comprehensive immigration reform flopped. And after the DREAM Act flopped, a- before comprehensive immigration reform flopped. Well, well he, the point is he created it because of congressional inaction and that's why it had trouble in courts because it was a question of whether he'd overstepped his executive authority. I'll do another correction. Okay. Being nitpicky, it actually it has not really been challenged in courts. Uh, the program that he created after comprehensive immigration reform was challenged in courts and was blocked in courts, but DACA itself, not DACA itself. was not. Uh, there was a threat that Texas would sue over it, and because Texas threatened to sue, Trump um, said, okay, we'll just end it. Uh, my uh, The reason I was trying to do that backstory, which I mangled, was that President Trump, when he ended DACA, said, fix it, Congress. Right. So this is their job, and they're not, they appear not to be doing it. Yeah, and they they say that they want to, and I think uh, there's varying levels to which that's an earnest desire. But uh, all the immigration reform efforts that have failed in the past, it's been because they have tried to add a bazillion things to them that, you know, kill the support from people from one party or the other. That's what um, certain senators or certain uh, House members on the Republican side especially are trying to do now, I think, is uh, add a bunch of stuff that Democrats are just not going to be able to accept. And so, uh, it, you know, I think it, there's a potential that this all falls apart just like things have in the past, even though a lot of people are insisting that they do care and they want to do something. All right. Elise Foley, Igor Bobic, thank you. Thanks. We'll be right back. Hello, So That Happened listeners. Some of you may remember that we used to have a Republican congressman named Reed Ribble as a monthly guest. We were sad that he retired, but I would like to introduce you to Ted Yoho, a Florida Republican who was a member of the conservative House Freedom Caucus. I caught up with Ted Yoho on Wednesday in the Speaker's lobby. So Congressman Ted Yoho, the Freedom Caucus is essentially holding out for its top priority, which is the, the military piece, higher spending on the military while keeping the rest of the government's funding at its current level? Well, again, I'm speaking for Ted. That was talked about, but I'm holding out for that. Uh, They have taken a stance, but you'd have to get the chairman to give you the stance of the Freedom Caucus. So everyone's wondering if Democrats will hold out for DREAMers, and there will be a debate over, uh, you know, who's to blame if the government does shut down at the end of the week. How do you think that could play out? Well, I think the Democrats ought to be real careful about that because they're going to hold out uh, funding our troops, a 2.4% increase, uh, getting rid of the medical device and these other things we've talked about to allow DREAMers to stay in the country. 
Uh, and so they're putting people that are here illegally over our troops. And so I don't think that would be a smart play for them. Democrats don't control the House or the Senate. They don't decide what bill gets put on the floor. And people know that. You know, they also don't control the White House. Do you feel like Democrats would wind up getting blamed even though they don't uh, control the government? Yeah, I think it would go down to that for sure because, you know, if they hold out um, and, you know, just make sure that Doc is on there, that's a non-starter. Number one, Paul Ryan's promised us that would never come up. And they're taking, they're, they're siding uh, with dreamers over military, you know, are people out there defending this country. And I, that's just, that's just a, a losing argument. I mean, you go back to the American people, we shut down the government and didn't pay our troops because we wanted, uh, you know, legal status for the dreamers. Uh, I don't think that would play very well for them. So there's a, a troop pay increase in the bill. Uh, but, you know, the broader Pentagon is undergoing an audit that, you know, won't be released until later this year. It's, it seems like uh, you could just say it's, it's defense spending and that that is a category that just doesn't get a lot of scrutiny. Right. And that's one of the things on the last CR, they were talking about upping uh, spending for the Pentagon, for the DOD. And I said, well, you know, we do that every time. When are we doing the reforms? And so it's undergoing that that audit right now and that's something that needs to be so that was a trade-off last time to get us to here um, but I think what my stance is and certainly it came out into the Freedom Caucus last night and again I'm speaking for me is we need to go full year for the military we've seen what a CR does the havoc it wreaks the extra money that uh, it costs the American taxpayers it's just not a way to run the business and we're at a crisis management and um, we're always responding to a crisis. Crisis management always is a poor way of doing business. All right, thanks, Congressman Ted Yoho. Don't miss your vote. Hi, I'm Elise Foley, and I'm here with my colleagues Arthur Delaney. Hi. And Ryan Riley. Hey. And we are going to talk about these FBI uh, lovers and their texts, and also Trump and the Mueller investigation. Um, so basically, conservative media is having a field day with these texts that were exchanged between these two FBI employees um, that were, some of them, very uh, anti-Trump. Yes. Uh, and the idea, uh, based on a report last week, that uh, Congress is looking into whether these people are leakers. And so the idea is that these, you know, texts show that the FBI was trying to undermine the Trump campaign, uh, trying to block him from becoming president or something like that. Do I have that right, Ryan? You do have it right, yeah. All right, cool. So so what what's the latest on this? Sure. I mean, so essentially, I think it's important to sort of start out remembering the context because we're in a different world than we are right now, right? I mean, at the time, everyone thought that Hillary Clinton was like sure to win the election, you know, um, and there are a lot of these leaks coming out of the FBI that had to do with stories that were sort of maybe anti-Hillary or, you know, basically weren't good for the Hillary camp. Um, but we know now that there are two simultaneous investigations going on. Obviously, the one that Comey spoke about at a press conference that was really publicly out there involving um, and that was closed, in fact, um, in the summer leading up to the that's campaign. That's the one that some people say cost Hillary the election. That's that one, yeah. And then we ended up with Comey putting out this letter you know, just shortly before the election, basically that saying that implied it was sort of reopened. It became a whole media storm. It was this major thing. So overall, there are a lot of things coming out of the FBI that were not good for the Clinton camp at that time. Um, yeah, we, it, it's kind of changed into James Comey being this hero for the left. But at, uh, as of before the last election, that was not how Democrats felt about James Comey. Correct. Or I mean, the FBI. And, that, and that sort of, if you want to believe that, it sort of involves erasing everything we know about James Comey, which is that he's a Republican, that he believes in the Ferguson effect, that, I mean, he was like a mainstream Republican, right? That's, that's who he was. Um, he was never he you know he worked during the George W Bush administration for the uh for the justice department he's not some like you know he's not some liberal hero by any stretch of the imagination um 
But I mean, so now we know in retrospect that, in fact, the FBI was looking into uh, the Trump campaign's uh, ties with Russia at the time. They didn't publicly acknowledge that at the time. And stories about it that came out uh, were very much so uh, sort of played by the idea that there wasn't much to be found there. Um, that it, this, but there, this didn't amount to much. But people, reporters knew when Paul Manafort joined the campaign that that person had abundant connections right. to Russia right. through his his lobbying work. Right. And you know what Comey has what said subsequently is you know the reason he treated these sort of differently is was that there had already been the the decision to make the Clinton um, matter public and sort of do that odd press conference that he had, you know, just after July 4th um, and a few months before the the election that a lot of people have criticized um, and, and was subsequently used as justification for firing him um, under the Trump administration, um, which is sort of a funny justification for them to use. Uh, but yeah, I mean, essentially, that's the important context, I think, that is missing from a lot of these stories. The idea that there were all these leaks that were um, hurting Trump coming from the FBI is sort of like ludicrous on its face, um, just because that wasn't how things played out. That if, if that was true, if there were truly people within the FBI trying to undermine Trump, they did a really piss poor job at it. Yeah, their, because, leaks, their <laughs> leaks didn't go very they did well. It, no. They didn't turn into many stories. Yes, correct. Yeah, I mean, there, and there was a lot of information that they could have provided at the time that would have been damaging to Trump, certainly, um, that wasn't thrown out there. Yeah, so you uh, and our other colleague, Nick Bauman, saw a bunch of these text messages that were exchanged between these two FBI uh, staffers and kind of put them into context of, uh, you know, what what they actually were related to at the time. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So um, what we learned early last month and yeah, last month in December uh, was that there were these text messages that a former member of uh, the Mueller team had sent. He was a high-ranking FBI official who was working on the Mueller team, and he had exchanged a bunch of uh, anti-Trump text, anti text messages. Um, we come to find out that it turned out that he was having a relationship with this other FBI lawyer, um, and they were sort of texting back and forth and often texting about news stories or sort of like live – a lot of the texts that I read were sort of like live tweeting or not live tweeting, rather live texting about um, ongoing debates or the DNC. So so, you know, they said a lot of negative things about politicians. They hated Bernie supporters. You know, they didn't – they hated Eric Holder. Um, they also thought that, you know, Trump was crazy and were really scared about what was going to happen if he actually got elected so into th office. So the fact that these two agents were having an affair is incidental to the fact that they were texting and their their marriages to other people are just collateral damage? Correct. Okay. That, yeah, that's – Just checking on that. That is indeed collateral damage, yeah. Um, that – I as far as I can tell that I, we don't know this for sure. We don't know if they were, you know, discovered at some time before that. But this came up within the context of a inspector general investigation that was um, basically looking into how Comey and other FBI officials and DOJ handled the Clinton matter. And because they basically were using their FBI phones, which pe people who are familiar with this think that's really odd because you should they should know that all of their text on their FBI phones or, you know, for basically for discovery purposes being um, in future cases being stored. It's the FBI. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. you, you would think, you would they, think would that that. they would know that. Yeah. I was going to say this is a PSA that people shouldn't do that, but I, I guess for journalistic transparency purposes, yeah. go ahead and text whatever you want on your <laughs> government phones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's, those are, the, we don't often get those in, in response to FOIA requests. Those, you know, I doubt unless you did a very specific FOIA request that you would ever get those eventually. But yeah, I mean, also there's this weird dynamic because essentially when they rolled this out last month and they let the, these text messages that uh, DOJ has now provided um, to Capitol Hill, um, they let – it was sort of this odd circumstance that um, Business Insider reported out a little bit more about, about how they actually let people see these text messages. And essentially, you know, they were not allowed to take photos of them. We're not allowed to – copy them. Um, we have to go basically and, and look and say, okay, at, to DOJ and like look at this printout and read whatever we want. We can take notes and that sort of thing, but that's all we're allowed to do. Um, so the context of the campaign is very different from today where you have Republicans in Congress holding hearings based on these texts and saying that they completely discredit the independent counsel's investigation into President Trump's campaign. Right. 
Yeah, it's a convenient talking point because, I mean, again, you know, the broader context here is important to remember that there's nothing wrong with uh, FBI employees privately exchanging their views about politicians via text messages. That's which is not illegal. They, correct, yeah. Um, I mean, the the affair actually might be more of an issue under FBI regulations for them then because that would potentially expose them to blackmail and that sort of thing. Um, that could be more of an issue than the actual just exchanging of text messages. You know, te- there's nothing barring FBI employees from, you know, texting uh, their friends privately and saying, oh, man, this crazy thing I'm watching on TV about Trump or this, you see this crazy story, that sort of thing would be perfectly above board. Just- but it allows Congress, right, to say, look, we're taking all of this seriously and we're holding investigations, but we're just holding them on this other thing. Right. <laughs> we're, we're just investigating whether the FBI is secretly a pro-Democrat <laughs> agency, right. uh, which, uh, as we kind of talked about is is kind of an absurd idea but it allows them to say look we're we're doing something we're we're taking all this seriously but undermine this other investigation yeah it's a great it's a great way to undermine the the entire probe right yeah i mean which is really how this is is being used at this point um you know because again this was before the team was even formed so it wasn't as though after they were really digging you know they're on the Mueller team that then they were texting all these things about you know we're going to get Trump and that sort of thing um it was really you know these were text messages when they were sending these messages they did not believe that Trump was going to win they thought that Clinton was sort of a shoe in um at the time um and so this latest round of stories uh, this later round of uh, one specific story actually from the Hills, John Solomon, um, really sort of fit into this ongoing narrative that was essentially saying that these anti-Trump people um, were sort of trying to take take down Trump. Um, and basically what it implied or sort of laid out is the idea that they were, you know, they were talking about stories and it looked like they were maybe talking with reporters. Um, and there's, you know, certainly texts in there that leave open the uh, idea that Lisa Page at least had talked to reporters. But the story was really poorly done because it didn't include any of the real context for what those actual stories were about. And if you go back and you look at what they were texting about at the time, um, it's actually a story that reflects poorly on uh, the FBI and on the Clinton camp because it, it's, a, it's a Wall Street Journal story in late October, um, you know, a couple weeks before the election that says that uh, the guy who was overseeing this Clinton email investigation, Andy McCabe, who later became FBI director after <laughs> Comey was fired, uh, was, his wife had received money from, uh, a cl- from Terry McAuliffe, who was obviously close with the, the Clinton family. Um, so that was not a story that reflected well – certainly not a, a story that reflected well on um, on Clinton and it definitely wasn't a story that hurt Trump. So it had seemed as though The Hill advanced the story that these pro-Clinton leaker lovers yeah. in the FBI were out to get the Trump campaign. But in fact, uh, if you look at their texts and the, the stories that they were texting about – they were not pro Clinton at all. <laughs> I think that they would both. I, I think that both of them probably voted for Clinton. I don't think that's. Uh, I, but that's not really what the the issue is here. It's whether or not they were taking steps to hurt Trump, which has sort of been um, the allegation. And you know, their political beliefs are sort of set aside. And I think that the best way to read these text messages as the, is as though these guys are like really FBI ideologues. That's their chief core principled commitment is like that the FBI is the best, the FBI should be powerful, the FBI should keep its integrity. Um, so the stories that they talked to that I, you know, I'd, I'd couch this somewhat, the story that it appears that they couch, that they spoke with uh, a reporter about um, where where Lisa Page, she says she threw someone under the bus is actually a story about the Clinton Foundation, um, which she abbreviates as CF. Um, and essentially she's – what she's saying – Though she's saying she told a reporter when she you know threw someone under the bus was that listen there was this guy over at DOJ a, a political appointee of the Obama administration who was trying to quash um, the Clinton the Clinton Foundation probe um, and was perhaps un- unethic- unethically sort of you know stepping outside his bounds and trying to um, you know tell the FBI what to do and the the entire you know principle of the FBI is there are these independent guys they you know charge in and do what they want and that you know they're supposed to have they're not supposed to be able to be sort of quashed by these political operatives within uh, within DOJ and in fact you know she has text messages in there when um, the one agent uh, when the agent she was having an affair with says essentially hey what you know have you thought about maybe joining uh, DOJ you know theoretically in a Clinton <laughs> administration and she's like no 
Like she does not want to do that. She doesn't want to deal with the politics. Is is there a single government agency that is more mythologized on a daily basis <laughs> than the FBI? Like there's how many TV shows and movies where they're just heroes? Yeah. But I mean that's a big part of – like I I don't think that's removed from – necessarily all that removed from reality because that's – I mean if you look at so many of the actions of the FBI, it's about a desire at least. Now you could you know to uphold their individual – their integrity. That was like really how you – you know you read the driving force um, of the Clinton uh, announcement that Comey made is that you know he's worried basically that – What's going to happen is Clinton's going to get elected and then I'm going to be facing all these questions on Capitol Hill about how I handled this from Republicans um, and that's why I'm going to make these moves now because you know, now it probably impacted the election and probably didn't go the way that um, he necessarily thought it would. Um, but that's what you can you can sort of read his moves as is that you know I'm trying to uphold the integrity of the FBI. That's my most that's my most important principle. So I want to be able to make moves that I'm going to be able to defend before when Republicans under the Clinton administration focus on this for probably the next, you know, four to eight years. <laughs> so this was such a big thing on conservative media. Did anybody uh, kind of pick up what you picked up about the context or was this just totally ignored? No, I mean, yeah, no, everyone, it, it was pretty much adopted wholesale because it wouldn't fit. The idea that they were talking to reporters for stories that reflected poorly on Clinton wouldn't fit into the narrative. It was, they, he had to sort of, you know, shoehorn it into this ready-made narrative that would be adopted by Hannity and Arnold guest spot there um, and be picked up in the conservative media and aggregated all over the place that, you know, this was, these anti-Trump texters uh, were leaking. Like, right, you could, that's the story that he put forward just leaving out that whole thing. Oh, it was probably about these stories that were kind of anti-Clinton and reflected poorly, you know, <laughs> and reflected poorly upon um, Clinton. All right. Well, thank you, Ryan Riley. Uh, this was really interesting to hear more about. And thanks, Arthur. You're welcome. Thanks. Hello, so that happened, listeners. This is Arthur Delaney. And I would like to request that you please give us a rating of four or five stars in iTunes. Plus, please force someone you know to listen to the podcast as well. We're classified as an essential government service and will not be affected by a government shutdown. Hi, I'm Elise Foley, and I'm here with my colleagues Nick Wing. Hey. And Arthur Delaney. Hey. (laughs) So... Last week, right after we finished taping, uh, we had a big news event, which is that the president reportedly, according to uh, Senator Dick Durbin and uh, contradicted by some people in the room, not by others, uh, said that various countries in Africa were shithole countries, pardon my language, and that we should send Haitians back to their country. We don't want them Uh and various other racist stuff, uh, which was in some ways surprising uh, and in some ways not. Um, but it's kind of restarted this whole question over, uh, you know, is Trump crazy? Is he super racist? Uh, and how can Republicans best defend themselves um, while they defend their uh, kind of crazy and racist president? <laughs> I, I think it's... Uh... It's the culmination of question we've been asking for the past year, which is what is Donald Trump's deal as president? What does he think he's doing? Is he capable of doing this job? Is he fit for office? And the fallout, the shithole fallout continued all week. It's been a major deal in, in our politics and it's it feeds right into the question of whether the government will partially shut down at the end of this week. And it's it's it goes to the question of whether he's – Sane, and we and the, we actually had his doctor come out this week, and I think he, the doctor answered the question pretty credibly. It was the guy was also Obama's doctor. I, I think. I mean, I just want to sort of preface this whole thing with: is he sane and is is he crazy? I feel like are two different questions. I mean, we look at people in this country. I mean, from our liberal bastions on the coast, you probably don't run into these people that often. The defense of Donald Trump for the shithole comment from some Fox News commentators, for example, was sort of disgusting in its 
nonchalance, right? It was like he's just the racist guy at the bar saying what people in mid- middle America think. Uh, I don't think those people are insane. Right. But I think a lot of people – would suggest that they might be a little bit crazed. What, what yeah, me- I mean, it, it's kind of there are two, or there are various arguments from people about why he might be unfit for office. There's the idea that he is uh, mentally not sound. I mean, he, he's a 71 year old, um, tends to, as reported in that Michael Wolf book, whether you know we believe all the claims in there or not, but that he repeats himself. Uh, he obviously says some things that are nutty sometimes. So there's this idea that maybe he's not mentally fit. There's an idea that he is a racist who's not fit for office on you know those principled grounds. And then also the idea that he's too corrupt to be fit for office. Sure. So there's all okay. sorts of different arguments, the, right? The sh- I think the shithole story represents everything about Donald Trump swirled together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is partly because it came on the heels of the Michael Wolf book with all the people saying he's crazy, we're going to need to break the glass and hit the 25th Amendment button. And then it came on the heels of him staging a, uh, a televised negotiation after which many pundits said, wow, the president really held it together during that, even though the, the sub- lowest bar. <laughs> right. The substance of what he said there was it was gibberish. In terms the of biggest takeaway. Agreeing, agreeing with whoever spoke last, right, it right. seemed like. Wasn't the biggest takeaway that he sort of just stated the Democratic position on this whole thing, too? He just like undercut. Yes. The, I mean, <laughs> but the, the point is uh, he had this. Like a few days later, had this raging meeting where he allegedly said shithole in reference to people from countries in Africa. And in the context of the United States with its history of uh, oppression against African Americans, it's a clearly racist statement. It sort of restated things, President, things that Donald Trump has done all his life and said all his life. And the the way Republicans responded was incredible with Lindsey Graham essentially confirming that the president said it. He's a Republican senator from South Carolina. But then these other guys who were there saying, no, no. Well, at first they said, and this is Senators Tom Cotton and David Perdue, who I think it's worth noting are on the – team on immigration. This was an immigration-related meeting of wanting to cut uh, legal immigration pathways. And um, that's kind of – that's their big agenda there. So the reason the, – the context in which this came up was Trump voicing support for the policies that they support. And so it's also about the policies, right, not just the language. Um, but both of them first said that they didn't recall hearing it. Then later uh, were a little bit more forceful and said that, you know, Trump didn't say it, um, have basically called Dick Durbin, the senator who was the only Democrat in the room who said that um, Trump did say this, have uh, Tom Cotton basically said that he Durbin was a liar. So it's kind of, uh, you know, their word against his word. But there's also been all these other uh, Nick, you compiled a bunch of them. These other defenses that people have had of this comment from, you know, it's like he didn't say it or he said something different or what he said was fine. I think, I mean, one of the more disturbing things, there are so many disturbing things about this, but the the quickness to reframe this as the shithole comment or the shithouse comment or whatever it was being actually a statement of his belief in a policy of of merit-based immigration I think is absurd because – I mean – that is a completely different debate. Basing your immigration policy on which countries you think are shitholes and which countries you think are not shitholes is not merit-based immigration, right? I mean, to, to my best knowledge, limiting immigration from places that you think are dirty or disease-infested or poor, uh, what does it have to do with merit-based immigration? How is that a, a statement of of policy? Like, So I, I, they tried to reframe it in a way that just was not what was happening. He was he's basing his immigration policy on his own racist stereotypes of certain nations. And to me, that's not merit based. And, you know, I don't see how you can frame it that way. Yeah. So so the reason that uh, African countries were being discussed is that this diversity visa lottery, which Trump wants to get rid of and has uh, just a totally zany and baseless idea of what it is. He says that countries just pick their worst guys and we pick them out of a hat, basically. It's not true. <laughs> um, he, uh, The big concern about getting rid of it is it is the way that a lot of people 
immigrants from Africa get to the U.S. because uh, it's for people to immigrate from countries that uh, don't have a lot of pathways. So there's this concern about shutting that down for that reason. He uh, so, you know, in that context, reportedly, I wasn't in the room. uh, That's when he said, well, why do we want people from these countries anyway? So. Sure. Like the the idea of a merit-based system is uh, country blind in theory. But at the same time, there are people who really want to protect the you know diversity of the immigrants that we do get. And that's the reason for this this lottery. So I think that in a lot of ways, that's what Trump said causes those people to double down and say, look, this is just a racist thing to want to get rid of this. Right. This is not a policy thing. This is just because the president is racist. So he's sort of revealing the, the deeper-seated racism behind a policy that they've managed to pretend is not racist but actually will have racist impacts when it, if it were to be put into effect. Can you explain the shithole, shithouse story? Uh, well, it's, it's hard to explain because it doesn't really make any sense. But uh, for, at first it was – the word he used was shithole. Then it was shithouse. It was unclear why that mattered because Trump's position all along has just been denied that he said any of these horrible things. Um, and then it turned out that actually shithole was not – was worse than shithouse because shithole is just a mean thing to say. But shithouse was apparently in reference to uh, like real estate in that people – who have a shithouse have outhouses. Therefore, they don't have plumbing in their places. So it's this very nuanced reference to uh, the level of development in these places, uh, which is which is complete bullshit. I mean, that's but not I, it's not true. I thought the reason that the distinction was being made was that uh, Cotton and Purdue had told the White House, you know, what, you know we didn't hear the word shithole. We sure. heard shithouse. It, right. It also gave. So them we're going to go out and deny that he said shithole. Because we heard this extremely similar word. Right. Initially, it was just to give cover. And then actually, they tried to pretend that there are different uh, connotations to each of those phrases, which I think is is equally absurd, as absurd as just pretending that it never happened. Yeah. And I, I think it's also um, all of this debate kind of... Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned, I, I don't think, is that Trump also reportedly said that he, why can't we get more people from Norway? Right. <laughs> which also uh, doesn't really back up the idea that the point is to have people come based on merit. Uh, Senator uh, Leahy said something this week in a um, congressional hearing with the DHS secretary. He said that uh, I something like, I, I don't think being from Norway is a skill. <laughs> <laughs> Which is which is true. Um, so if you have the president kind of revealing that what he wants to base his immigration policies on is getting more people from Norway versus more people from Africa or Haiti, I think anybody who's reasonable can kind of look at it and say, what what are the differences there? And obviously, you know, there are some differences in terms of how developed those countries are. Um, but you have to remember the reason that people have immigrated to the U.S. for the entire history of the U.S., right, is to leave various things in the country that they they were in before. So, so the president did not – throughout this – the fact that we're talking about it, it's the president not grasping the policy. And the question of his uh, cognitive abilities was huge this week when the White House sent out the, the doctor who did a physical and a mental exam on him. A yeah. little bit of a mental exam, right? Well, Nick, you can <laughs> not a psychiatric one, is my not, not the, psychiatric. The doctor either. who's completely legitimate and who was also Barack Obama's doctor completely vouched for tr- both Trump's physical and mental health. And part of the uh, the mental part was he gave him an exam. Yeah, there's been this undercurrent of uh, questions about potential early onset, you know, Alzheimer's, sundowning, various things. Questioning whether he really his his mind is starting to fade. And so he gave him what's called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. I have a copy of it here. And, you know, it's a pretty basic test. It's the sort of thing that if you gave to probably like an 11-year-old, they'd be able to to figure out. It's not testing any sort of real acuity. Um, We've got the paper we've got here. The paper it's, here. Got some, it's got some pictures so, on it. So here's a fun one. Uh, this – I can't, you know, convey this uh, through audio because it's, it's actual visual 
identification, but there are pictures of three animals. I'm going to give it away here. One of them's a lion, one of them's a rhinoceros, and one of them's a camel. It's, uh, Nick, it's okay for you to describe the picture. We're well, yeah, not administering but... <laughs> the test to our audience. So those three animals, you I think, are, are they're pretty identifiable animals. And uh, if you can name all three of them, you get three points. So this looks That's like three it's for points alone. What I think what you're trying to say is this looks like it's for little kids. It's for little kids. Donald Trump was very excited by the fact that he got all of them correct. Uh, and not only was he excited by that fact, he actually. And this is, you know, maybe more evidence of Donald Trump being absurdly just narcissistic. But in an interview with Reuters yesterday, he suggested that his perfect score on this test was an example that maybe his predecessors had left him the North Korea mess because they wanted someone with the mental fitness and acuity to be able to handle such a difficult problem. And Donald Trump is that guy because he got 30 out of 30 on a test for 11-year-olds. Well, you know, that's, I think that's that that funny. was a joke. Yeah. I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't think it's a joke that he thinks he's smarter than Obama, but I think he was joking. He I, does. I, think, I, yeah. I think uh, I, In I, defense of Trump. I do think that people should set aside the fantasy that he is uh, uh, going to lose his marbles and just keel over or be removed by Mike Pence. Yes. I think he's uh, he's not – it's not that he's senile. It's that he's just very willfully uninterested in learning anything. He's Yeah, he's, but he's also, you know, as a shithole comment, I think, uh, revealed he's he's like an old, racist, rich, white man who watches Fox News all day. I mean – Right. Know, which makes him unfit for office, well, we, I would say, but – well. But that's not that's not the argument uh, of the twenty five right. the mentor twenty fifth amendment people. Sure, it's that that argument is that he's completely off his rocker. Right, and I, I I feel like even though this is a little silly, that shouldn't that shouldn't be what we're talking about. We're we're talking about a different sort of uh, competence. I, I agree. I agree. But but if you were to add a little bit of instability on top of the basic core personality traits of Donald Trump, it would be. It, and I think people are very scared that. Add a little bit of actual yeah. insanity or Alzheimer's on top of those, and we're in for a lot of trouble. Yeah, but I agree. But I agree. He's impulsive and willfully ignorant. Yeah, it's one of those things that's good to look into. I, I, I think <laughs> um, that at the White House this week, when they brought out the doctor and had him talk for something like an like hour. An hour uh, one thing I was frustrated by is that the questions kind of over and over, not to knock my fellow journalists, were like, so is the president crazy? <laughs> like, just in phrased in different ways, which I'm not saying isn't worth asking. And I think it's great when officials answer questions. But then uh, Sarah Sanders, the press secretary, came out and was like, well, we've already kept you in here for an hour, so we're not going to do very many questions. So also, it's like, to what degree is this all a distraction from other stuff? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of questions about the president. Uh, it sounds like we've a little bit resolved from one doctor, one of them. Yes, I, I totally, I, that's what I'm trying to say. Like it's, it's time to refocus, uh, and, uh, we'll have the government shut down potentially in large part because he just doesn't want to govern in the way a normal person would, but it's like a, it's very willful and it's not because he's insane. Or yeah, he's erratic. Senile. Clearly, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean he secretly has Alzheimer's. Clean bill of health for Donald Trump. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Arthur. Thanks. Welcome. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney. And this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, Igor Bobic, Nick Wing, and Ryan Riley. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. And thank you to everybody who emailed in response to last week's request that you tell me a little about yourselves. Some of you are doing the dishes. Some of you are studying for PhDs. Some of you are driving to the dog park with your mom. As far as I can tell, you're all geniuses. Thank you so much for listening and for writing it. <laughs>